This week on 1001 Album Complaints, we're transported back in time to a year that was a turning point in the trajectory of modern hip-hop music. New York jazz, gangster rap, milky smooth crate diving samples, shoehorn serial references, and shameless self-promotion are blended together with strikingly sexual overtones to show us why all the ladies love Cool James. The entertaining, self-referential, and sometimes weirdly creepy fourth album from LL Cool J brings us 61 minutes of pleasure while highlighting an artist struggling to update his sound as the 80s tick over into the 90s and the wider music-listening populace comes around the way to Farmer's Boulevard and experiences the booming systems of the self-proclaimed Mr. Goodbar. Join us as we see what happens when a 22-year-old makes a comeback amidst the changing musical landscape with LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out. Up next on 1001 Album Complaints. Hello and welcome to 1001 Album Complaints. We are back again, and today we're going to be talking about LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out. Oh, yes. This is an exciting one. Thank you for joining us again. Let's do a quick round robin of introductions. I am Tom. I am Adam. And I am Phil. (laughs) Sure about that, Phil? Some some debate there, but I like it. I, I I'd like to point out that I am looking at Theo, Tom, and Rana Adam on my screen. So. Oh yeah, so right. confusing. Oh yeah, right. We do we do have faces though, and I'm Rob. <laughs> I'm glad to be back in the studio. We're all lifelong musicians, lifelong uh, critics and appreciators of music, and we have decided to go through on a week-by-week basis every album that was recommended in the 1001 albums you must listen to before you die. And as the large wheel told us, Hello Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out is up this week. So we're going to get right into it. Before I go into some of the background on the album, kind of what the context of LL Cool J releasing this was, maybe we should get some really, really initial thoughts, because I think this was a bit of a surprise, surprise is the wrong word, a bit unfamiliar to probably most of us here in the studio. Tom, what were your initial thoughts on this? You know, I found that LL Cool J was a man searching for a style in this album. We can talk a little bit about the context, but you sort of see that this is a point in time where rap was changing from that initial very New York boom bap style to the ascendancy of gangster rap and the ascendancy of like these really high level lyricists. And that was never really what LL was all about. And uh, he's sort of trying to find his way in this new landscape. I found it to be a little scattered and there were some successes on the album that I think pointed the direction of his career after this. Uh, I think there were lots of swings and misses where he was just trying to be something that he wasn't. For me, uh, a genre I'm very unfamiliar with, so it was a great excuse to to put on uh, this album and just listen to it all the way through. First run through, my initial thought, it was fun, right? Something new, something different, a lot of energy in it. I like that. Tom, to your point, there's a couple turds in there as well, right? <laughs> but overall, I, I enjoyed listening to it, you know? So, Phil, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean... I thought upon listening to it, like I was definitely sort of taken a little aback about how often like vocal samples were used as part of like the loop and the backing track. I thought that was really interesting and it really stood out to me. I also thought like, 
I thought there was just like a weird juxtaposition of like really raw, you know, drum beats. I mean, there were parts that even made me see like, oh, I understand how, you know, New York jazz and like, you know, a, a record like this are connected. Something like Medeski Martin and Wood or even like Soul Live. But at the same time, yeah, but then this juxtaposed against like weird, almost like Janet Jackson style, like synth hits. Uh, and I also thought it was really like sexual. The record was very sexual and that, that struck me <laughs> upon <laughs> both lessons. <laughs> Slapped you right in the face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like a like a cereal spoon. So, <laughs> I mean, I agree with what, what everyone's saying. My my initial thoughts on it were that the production I thought is so. This this album was released, we should say, uh, September fourteenth, nineteen ninety, uh, on Def Jam Records. And I think with that date in mind, I thought the production was a little bit more modern than I was expecting it to be. Coming out in nineteen ninety, I noticed that it seemed a little caught between sort of the two worlds of hip hop. Tom kind of alluded to that because I think that was a turning point or around a turning point. And I would say that to LL's credit, his flow, at least on a few songs, feels a little more 90s than it does 80s, which for being released in 1990s like, is pretty good, I think. So it was a little better than I was expecting. I enjoyed it a bit more, but it's still, it is quite scattered. And that jumped out to me right away. Whereas some of the other, I'm not a hip hop aficionado by any stretch, but the other hip hop records I do know, mostly classics, they seem to have a slightly more consistent vibe to them. And this felt a little all over the map to jump between sexy and hard and creepy, even dancey, whatever you want to say. So it, it sort of felt like it was all over the place. At least some of that. So some of the production history here. So the person that's credited as the producer on this is Molly Mall, who's a super famous producer. But as I dug deeper into it, he didn't actually help out on every single track. So I think that gives you some of the reasoning for why there is a, there's a pretty big gap in the production of these different songs. But Molly Mall, I think this, the songs that he contributes to tend to be the better songs, certainly on a beat level, although I think LL's flow still has some, some challenges over top of it. But when they're able to combine you know, a good beat and a good hook, that's when I think they get a couple of the, the better songs on the record, right? So a little background on Molly Mall, if you guys don't know. So he's credited as the discoverer of sampling originally. So super, super famous. Um, the bold claim. The bold claim, right? But apparently he. <laughs> but he was so he's an he was an intern when he was like in his later teenage years, like in the early '80s, as an intern at some studio, and he just had a lot of early access to really expensive technology, and kind of happened upon pulling down a drum sample, a snare drum sample from from a James Brown song or something, and realized the implications. Maybe he was the first to realize the true implications of pulling these samples down into his drum machine and what he could do with it and how he could control the patterns sort of more thoroughly. And then he had this sort of long history as a as a producer, kind of a behind the scenes guy, right? He was a he was a radio DJ actually. That's sort of like how he got into the game, got a start. One of the reasons I am somewhat familiar with him is that he was the guy who got into that that beef. And this is like this also it's like of an era, right? There was we all kind of grew up in that era of mid nineties East Coast West Coast beef between mm-hmm. rappers, but like the original beef was like. They referred to it as like the bridge wars. It was New York rappers fighting the over rich, 
Right. Yeah, like which which one was yeah. the actual true standard bearer of rap. And so he and like KRS-One had this like back and forth where they sort of like hated each other, partly because KRS-One was like originally rejected by them. Boogie Down Productions was sort of like, that was KRS-One's group. And they were going to like trying to get their word out there. And uh, like Marley Marl was like, no. Nah don't really want it and so they put out a song called the bridge where like it was it was it wasn't marley marl it was like one of the guys that he brought up that basically was talking about how like queensbridge was like the standard bearer of like hip-hop and there's a great song that uh krs1 has called the south bronx where he basically like shits all over them and talks about how like the, the bronx is where it's at just again the context of the time it like hadn't even gone right, national right. at that point where like these guys were sort of coming up it was still very regionalized so Yes, to all that, right? And I think my, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, is that he was a DJ in the old sense of the word, meaning he wasn't an on-air talent. He was the person actually playing the records and in some sense deciding which records yes. to be played. So yes. he was the guy that would he get He wasn't a personality. Record. He was not yeah, a personality, yeah, he like, right? Yeah. yeah. He was the guy that would get your record played. And and so it did mean a lot, but people did know his name. And, you know, he's called out famously in Biggie's Juicy and I think the on-air personality he was connected with was called Mr. Magic. So that's the the line in Juicy there. So he's a big influence on people like that, on RZA. And the, the folks, the crew that he started um, called Juice Crew was what some of the guys that came up through that were like Big Daddy Kane, Biz Marquee. Those were his, his dudes, to Tom's point about these kind of uh, borough wars. Cool. So he was involved in some of the better songs. I bet you can already guess which of those songs I'm referring to. The, the, all the singles that were released oh, definitely some of the singles and uh a little more about the about the recording of the album it was recorded like, at this place called chung king house of music uh, sorry house of metal rather right right some people call it the abbey road of hip-hop you know kanye is recorded there Nas, jay-z license to ill was done there the stuff that wasn't done in rick rubin's dorm room <laughs> the first the big public enemy record takes a nation of millions um the big run dmc record raising hell they were all done there. It's this like studio above a Chinese restaurant that I guess before hip hop kind of came in and took over was known for for producing metal bands. But that's where it, that's where it was made. And by the way, I just I just love the imagery of like the first time that like a hip hop act came to record there, and it's just like this <laughs> a bunch of fucking, long hair, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, like docking looking motherfucker with his uh, leather yeah. jacket. And they got all these like huge stacks of amps, and they're like, I actually don't need any of these amps. <laughs> you want to borrow my Satan guitar? Do you have no, a I'm microphone? Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly. So, so yeah, it was an interesting time, kind of in both in hip hop and in music, right? Just to kind of give you a, a list of a few other records that came out that same year. It ran a gamut, right? And you can see some of the directions that I think the genre was kind of taking. Vanilla Ice's record, To the Extreme, came out in 1990. In the early part of the year, the MC Hammer record came out. Fear of a Black Planet, which is the public enemy record mm -hmm. with Fight the Power and 911's A Joke on it, came out. And then also the first Tribe Called Quest record came out in 1990. And of course, tons more. But there were a lot of different kind of, I, I see those as sort of representing some different fragments of the hip-hop diaspora right uh, yeah, one, yeah rob I, i'd like to, to sort of add to that here because i i think that this kind of it speaks to the sort of central thesis that i was putting together in my head of like why would this album qualify as an album you have to hear before you die it's a fun album but like what what elevates it right fear of a black planet 
People's Instinctive Travels and the Paths of Rhythm. Eric B. and Rakim's Let the Rhythm Hit Him came out. Boogie Down Productions, which is basically KRS-One, put out Edutainment. And uh, Ice Cube, America's Most Wanted um, on the West Coast came out. And I feel like there is a a sort of like, uh, you can almost see the different paths that hip-hop was taking through those albums, right? You got America's Most Wanted, which is like Ice Cube, it's authentically hard. Like he talks about, I'm going to rob people. I have a bunch of guns, fuck everything, fuck the police. And like, you buy it. You're like, yes, Ice Cube, you're a scary motherfucker. I mean, he's now in like Chipmunks movies and stuff. But like back then, he (laughs) was was a scary dude. Coin Evolution, yes. And so that was like this like path of like authentic gangster rap that LL... I feel like was trying to have a little bit of that on Mama Said Knock You Out, but he just never came across as authentic with it. And then you got Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet, which is like social rap almost. It's like they're talking about real conscious social issues. They're really like actually out there, like trying to make a statement about society with their music. LL's not doing that, but he kind of tries to do it on that one song. At the end Um, there, the illegal illegal search. Yeah. Yeah. Illegal search. He's talking about like, but it's also like, it's like it sounds it's like an out it's a song about being harassed as a young black man but it has this like tony 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 vibe with like illegal illegal right, right. like a will smith vibe like parents just don't understand oh i <laughs> totally totally <laughs> got will smith i totally yes. got will smith yeah and i mean yeah just to back you up tom i i had i came to the same conclusion which is ll is himself torn on who he is personally he's trying to be hard but he's much more like the Fresh Prince, except not quite as clever, honestly. But it's partly because he hasn't just committed to one persona. Well, and also, like, speaking of clever, just to bring up that sort of Eric B. and Rakim album, Rakim is a, he's a lyrical artist. He has complexity. LL's rhymes are A-A-B-B. There's not a lot of inner line rhyming. It's a lot of, like, very simplistic rhyme schemes. But again, he tries to come off as like eat him up L chill album where they're sort of talking about like, yeah, eat him up. Just, yeah, spit fire. And yeah. But mm. again, it just doesn't there was somebody out there that was doing it better. And I think that he was again, he was dipping his toes in a lot of these different uh, genres. And then obviously Tribe Called Quest, they had that sort of playful thing going on, like, you know, Left My Wild and El Segundo. Hilarious song. But that album also has Can I Kick It? which is like that song Farmer's Boulevard on Mama Said Knock You Out, where it's like talking about like sitting on the stoop and like, you know, kicking rhymes back and forth. And Can I Kick It is just like a million times better at that. So they sort of like, <laughs> all right. But what LL did that I don't think had really been done before is he did the sexy version of rap. Right, right. Beforehand, even like looking at the visuals around it, you look at the, the rap album covers, it's like dudes in like super starched baggy clothes and gold chains. And like LL is like ripped and shirtless and like looking good and looking sexy. And I don't think that sexy rap was really a thing before this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the thing that specifically with like around the way girl kind of caught on. And LL was like, that's the thing. That's what I can do that's that other people thing, aren't doing right, right now. Right. A bunch of other people are doing all this other shit. I'm trying to do better. Oh, guys, guys, and, yeah, something just go. occurred to me. <laughs> What's that? So I'm looking at the album art, and we're kind of saying like, uh, when when did this come out again? Ninety September of ninety. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm hearing a lot of like uh, a lot of this is pretty good, but it's kind of derivative, you know, of something else. Even this album art, I knew I knew it from somewhere. It's just like that old 
Bo knows Nike campaign where Bo Jackson was like ripped with a bat on his shoulders. And that came out in 1989. So even the cover is a little derivative (laughs) of something (laughs) happening in pop culture. All right. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong, but like, let me, let me, let me pull up bonus. Well, like, <laughs> wait, his rap? Like, wasn't there a bonus rap oh, song? Let's, let's, <laughs> not, yeah. let's not get into that. Dude, that's all right, sorry. Wait, that's was right. Bo a triple threat? I thought he was just a double, <laughs> double trouble, but you're telling me he's a triple threat? <laughs> also spitting rhymes. So this, this thesis though, it does it's make. It's not as derivative as I thought now that I'm looking at it, bonus. It does make sense though, for where LL was even at in his career. So the kind of backstory to this record is that he, this is his fourth studio record, LL Cool J. 85 was his first, right? Yeah. Was By the 17. way, he was 22 years old right. when he put out Mama Said Knock You Out. And right. he's talking about a comeback. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So he'd had, a, he'd had a lot of success as an early, you know, had some early hits and things. And he had money. But what really happened was he put out the third record. It's called like Walking with a Panther. Where, you know, I listen to some of it, he's, he's being a lot more flashy. And in his own words, he was kind of experiencing fame and fortune for the first time and living it up. And at a time when I think now or later in the 90s, it was much more common to show flash and show bling and show money in the rap culture. But he got a lot of shit for it, even though it was kind of critically, sorry, it did commercially pretty okay. People from the streets were not feeling it. They felt that he was disconnected from his roots and he really took the critics to heart and got really annoyed. And he kind of felt like he had to come back with some anger, which is really what the mom said, knock you out stuff is about, but kind of the whole impetus for the record was, was that, that he really felt like he needed to get in there and, and show, uh, show the naysayers. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like walking with a Panther, I, I listened to that as well. It's, I could see why you're putting out your sort of third album. You haven't really advanced your skills a whole lot. It doesn't sound like there was that whole boom bap style of like just drum machines in the background doing like, and you know, it, it the production oh, had gone, it's like, yeah, listen, I mean, I'm a beatboxer on the side, of course, that's how I that's my other side hustle, but um, no, like the production had advanced a bit, but like his lyrical ability had not advanced all that much and so if all that you're bringing to the table that's new is i have so much more money than you i can see people being like yeah fuck you ll like why should i listen to you what are you what are you telling me about life or anything there was no message behind his music Mm -hmm. right and at least he settled on with mama said knock you out my message is i can fuck really well Okay, which That's is at least message. which is at least a quarter of the songs, or how how much your girl is going to get with me, and you don't know about it, and I got I'm going to lay it down, you know. Yep, I'd, I'd say and probably yeah, a quarter of the songs have that that overall theme. Just about laying pipe, <laughs> Mr. Goodbar. Oh I, man, yeah, it's got it's got to be hard, right? Especially at a time when rap hip hop was. Hip hop was exploding, right? Like many, many, many more artists were entering the game probably every every day or every month. And he was sort of he had early success, but was getting pushed out both because maybe he wasn't, uh, you know, the the tide was shifting in terms of what was popular, but also also just because it's a system that rewards uh, fresh voices generally, right? So yeah, like he wasn't he wasn't hungry anymore, you know. Exactly. He even had an he even had an album before this to talk about how well fed he was, not how hungry he was, you know. <laughs> 
right. by definition, I am not hungry right. anymore. But his classic uh, coastal elite hit going back to Cali. Yeah. So it's not, a, not as nearly as good as the biggie one, by the way, no, <laughs> not nearly as good. No, it's definitely not. Well, okay. So maybe to set the scene a little bit for what the kind of the vibe was in the hip hop world at that time, you know, one of the things we like to do is look up the, what the number one song on the billboard, what billboard called the rap singles chart at that time. So this is in September 1990, and this song actually was on the charts at number one for four weeks running. So let's take a pause and listen to D-Nice's They Call Me D-Nice. This is D-Nice, and I'm about to drop some funky lyrics on this track I made up, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and you don't stop. Yo, my name is D-Nice, although I hate to admit it. Okay. Wait, what do they what do they call them again? They call me D nice. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love songs that announce who you are constantly. <laughs> Listen, that is a very valid marketing technique, all right? There's nothing wrong with that. Says the former members of the shop. <laughs> So where do you think that song? Great plug. Because that feels much more like an 80s hip hop song to me. I'm specifically asking Tom, like, how do you think that fits in the pantheon of like how hip hop was shifting? Because at, at a time when Public Enemy was coming out, when Tribe was was coming on the scene, when Ice Cube was coming on the scene, I was a little surprised. And I should say some of these other songs, 911's a joke, America's Most Wanted, were, t- were number one hits earlier in the year. But at that time... They Call Me D-Nice was number one for four weeks running. And I had never heard this song in my life. Well, I would say that the issue that hip hop had at the time and specifically us as listeners in the future have trying to dissect what's going on is that the things that became classics were not readily packaged commercially viable products right away. And so you got a lot of like, please hammer, don't hurt them and fucking vanilla ice being really popular, but that does not stand the test of time, but that's like easy to catch on to. And you're like, Oh yeah, that's like this, like cool new black sound that I'm going to listen to. And in retrospect, the things that were actually really good were not ready. Like the, the world wasn't ready for them at the time. Yeah, they were too so, rough. The fact that, yeah, like in 1990, a very 80s sounding rap song was number one makes a lot of sense because the audience and by and large, like the white suburban audience that drives almost all the chart sales was several years behind what was actually happening in in these like high intensity incubators of like the New York scene, the L.A. scene of really good cutting edge rap i would say that's probably true with a lot of music that the cutting edge stuff is not immediately successful usually underground in the clubs marinating for years right and it's the kind of stuff that like three four five ten twenty five years later the people who are like actually into music have recognized that as being not only something that is in and of itself really good and like a good listen, but also can see the way that that has had ripple effects throughout the that particular music genre. And so I am not at all surprised that like when the first Tribe album came out, it wasn't a number one hit. But if you were to listen to any of the stuff that was like topping the charts for rap back 
then. Nobody's listening to that now, but everybody's listening to Tribe. I mean, I in college, that was like the thing to do, especially on today, 420, sitting around listening to Tribe Called Quest and smoking weed in college was like, and that was, you know, that was 20 some years after that came out. Not 20 some. Yeah, that was, you know, 15 plus years after that came out, sitting in college, smoking weed, listening to Tribe Called Quest, right? Fair enough. And just for a a fun little digression, speaking of things that aren't necessarily tapped into the mainstream of popularity, the number one song overall on the Billboard charts at this time, we're still a year away from Nirvana's Nevermind, you know, changing people's lives, but it's John Bon Jovi's Blaze of Glory. Oh, yeah. Oh. Little 11-year-old Adam somewhere in front of a radio. (laughs) Listening to whatever the Philadelphia pop station was. <laughs> so I bet what you guys don't know is that this is going to be a little callback to the last podcast episode, but guess who plays guitar on this track? Ooh. It's got to be Jimmy Page. <laughs> it's one Jeff Beck. Oh, Jeff oh, Beck. All right. I was going to say, it's not sloppy enough to be Page. It's, actually, <laughs> yeah, right. it's well, got a well little, done. It's timed. It's imagine, by the way, how fucking bored Jeff Beck must have been playing that guitar. <laughs> like, seriously? <laughs> you, okay. Yeah. I, I'm gonna this? Play, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch it up. I'm going to play a left-handed guitar just to give myself a little <laughs> bit of a challenge. I just, I just remember that uh, in this video, which was every So he was recorded for the Young Guns 2 yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposedly, because Emilio Estevez is one of the actors in the movie, asked John Bon Jovi if he could put uh, "One a Dead or Alive" in the movie, and Bon Jovi is like, "Nah, it's not. I could write another cowboy song or whatever." But I just remember the video is just like John Bon Jovi with an acoustic guitar in the desert, and then the way they work in the movie <laughs> is that there's also a projector screen like next to him in the middle of this like vacant <laughs> desert playing Young Guns too. <laughs> that, that video probably cost like four million dollars to make. Or something. Wait, exactly. it was the, the video was playing. The projector yeah. was playing. It was like movie. he was <laughs> at. A, it was like he was at a drive-in in the middle of nowhere by himself on a horse. That is very very nineteen nineties. No, no. Please, Phil. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I actually, no, I was thinking of Wanted Dead or Alive. I was going to say he's on a steel horse. That right. is, but no, that is Wanted Dead or Alive. Uh, <laughs> also, not had to, not to go back hits, to, by the way. Not to go back, back to last week too much, but Adam, Jimmy Page's sloppiness is an aesthetic choice. <laughs> <laughs> aesthetic uh-huh. choice. And that can be seen very clearly on his non-Led Zeppelin studio. Uh, all right. Mm. My poor and sloppy guitar playing is also a deliberate choice. Right. Quaaludes had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Adam, I would love to hear you and Jimmy Page go toe to toe. We can set that up. That's podcast number five. We'll give it a couple weeks out. Let's see what Dude, we can do. JP is a big fan of this podcast. Right, so of he's course. clearly on board already. The phone's ringing right now with right. his request. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. So, okay, so back, back to Mom Said Knock You Out. So we know that LL was was mad. He he felt that the naysayers had really got the best of him on that third record. He was he was kind of mad at himself. He was mad at the mad at the streets. And and he went and asked his uh, grandmother for advice. And this is where apparently the line from Mama said knock you out. Grandmother told him that he should knock out his crit it really makes no sense, but supposedly he got this line and was inspired by his grandmother to go in and record <laughs> record the tune. <laughs> when, bullshit to me. <laughs> right. Right. Mm-hmm. When uh when the when the record came out though, uh, Rolling Stone gave it a generally positive review, which is which is nice. They did say that LL's about as subtle as a bomb. 
meaning not subtle at all, which I <laughs> It's not a whole lot of depth to a lot of the, you know, uh, uh, similes and metaphors and whatnot. Exactly. Sure and and the Rolling Stone review also comments on how he he definitely needs Marley Mall kind of his, his production style, his layered production to really back up his his swagger. Otherwise, a lot of the songs kind of fall flat. But they were they were generally positive, like I said, and they they acknowledge that one of the things LL Cool J has going for him is kind of this gently self-mocking tone, which makes him a little more forgivable, I think. Right. Which is nice. <laughs> And then that's a good comment. That's a fair comment. Again, though, I would also say this is something that Rob commented earlier. Will Smith was still doing it better at that time. He's still doing it better. But, you know, listen, being second to Will Smith is not, uh, you know, that's not terrible. A lot of people say that in the rap game, being second to Will Smith is terrible. but (laughs) He's not actually that good of a rapper, but he had a he had a fun vibe to him that you're just like, it's not threatening. Yeah, but like if if you saw the, the scorecard for the game of life. And you came in right behind Will Smith. You think, oh, I did pretty good. Dude, if I came in 75 places beyond, behind LL Cool J, I'd be fucking <laughs> yeah, happy with the score sad. of the game of life. Yeah. Also, let's keep in mind they both have abs. So. <laughs> that is true. There, there is a connection. No, I was a, I was a huge Fresh Prince fan back in the day. I had, had those tapes and listened to the heck out of uh, He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper. And so when I was listening to this, I definitely, it called it to mind a, a few times. But I do think the difference is that Will Smith was genuinely funny on things like Nightmare on My Street and Parents Just Don't Understand and I Think I Can Beat Mike Tyson. Oh, Cool J just doesn't achieve that level of hilarity. So he, I hope, rightfully ditched that approach and went with the sexy lane. Well, one thing I'll also throw out there, all right, is that uh, Will Smith is a really good actor. He is a very good actor. He's made some terrible choices in the movies that he has done. But like you watch Philadelphia, you cannot say that he's not a good actor, right? No way, he's he's not Philadelphia. He's um, so I'm thinking of um, was it Terms of Endearment or the uh, Pursuit of Happiness? Was he was really good in Pursuit? He of was very good in Pursuit of Happiness. My point is that he is actually quite a good actor, That's and right. Right. I think that the driving force behind LL Cool J and Will Smith is like I want to be famous, and so Will Smith was like, this is a persona that I can adopt and become famous off of to it. Get me to the next spot. Right. And he was better at doing that because I've seen LL Cool J act and he's not a very good actor. Yeah. He, is, he belongs on the hosting platform, not in the, not in, not on N- NCIS San Andreas. I don't know, whichever <laughs> flavor no, no, of the, the right spot for him. That's right. Spot. <laughs> you're you're yeah, right. No, NCIS is perfect. LL <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool J was in um, Deep Blue Sea. That oh yeah. The one that he was in. The yeah. underwater shark movie. Man. Yeah. And he is, he is not good in that movie. <laughs> kind of a standout of being not good in that movie, <laughs> which is saying something. Right. <laughs> so holy shit he's been on ncis for 12 like years five, 12 wow 12 years one one for each ab <laughs> <laughs> that's about right <laughs> they don't even need writers for those shows anymore right they just <laughs> the random scenario generator and they just ad lib yeah, the scriptatron <laughs> 5000 just turns them out here's your 60 potential lines for your reaction <laughs> We're going to need a bigger body bag or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So uh, two other things that jumped out to me, and I I think you guys must have noticed them. One is that there is no cursing on this album, or at least very, very little cursing. Yes, that stood out because there were a couple spots where he goes for it. The rhyme is completed with, with an obscenity. 
and it dips. And I kept checking Spotify thinking, am I like, did I deliberately select the clean version of the album? And I, I'm assuming, based on what you're now saying, you guys also experienced the same album, which was there, very yeah. little. There are a couple, he drops a couple end bombs in there that, you know, but like, it's not, you know, what's that classic Eminem line where he's like, Will Smith doesn't have to cuss in his raps. It's like, well, I do. So fuck him and fuck you too. <laughs> like, I feel like he was sort of kind of going for that still kind of squeaky clean vibe, but also like really weirdly dirty sexual vibe. Right. Right. That's an interesting societal yeah. thing, right? right? I don't that curse, line. but I murder people and, you know, yeah. <laughs> do whatever else. All right. So let's, maybe we should get into the specific songs where we talk about some of these, these lines. So uh, we agreed on a couple songs that we're going to, we're going to focus in on, but, but feel free to throw whatever in as we go along. I think the simplest way is to go chronologically through the album. I, I should also mention that this album is over 60 minutes of music. And that's probably one of the things that's weighing it down in my mind. And this, this is how you can tell, right, that it's a it's a CD, not not vinyl era release. People were just really, just how much can we put on the damn thing? And the editor to chop it down by another thirty three percent probably would have done it good, in my opinion. But it's a lot. It's a lot of music. Yeah, I can agree with that. So I probably listened to this album through maybe four, five times over the last week mostly in the background, a couple times actively listening. And around the third to last song, it started dragging and I kind of looked down and I was like, oh my God, I still have three more. You know, like, so that's not where you want to be when you're releasing an album where you're wanting it to end. So yeah, Rob, I'm, well, I'm feeling you. I will say this, and I, I think that this is, um, maybe it's just something about the way that I experience hip hop albums versus the way I experience rock albums is that rock albums generally tend to have more of a a peak an ebb and then a peak and then like the last song is kind of like a long one and there's like a formula for like a rock album you kind of hit an initial peak you do a little dip you hit a secondary peak and then the last song is like a long one that like tends to be like a true fan's favorite type of song but it's not like hip-hop albums do not do that in my experience the one exception i will say is probably like the wu-tang and the 36 chambers i think that that actually follows that format a little bit better but that also is one of those impeccably produced albums that uh, i can find no flaw with that album whatsoever but i think that rap albums tend to generally just like front load a bunch of stuff and then you sort of really are dragging towards the end right um, that's just been my experience listening to, to a bunch of rap albums so i hadn't thought of that, that before but yeah so you don't think there is a an implied formula to hip-hop albums that people are following then well i think the implied formula is like stack it put the <laughs> stack singles, it up at the front yeah put the singles up first well because yeah. in this case the title track is, you out yeah. is buried yeah it's eight well, it's like, it's like in the yeah. track listing yeah. Which is interesting. Okay. Uh, so let's but go. Eighth out of what? Like 14. 14. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's all right. 14. yeah so it's not it's not super <laughs> it's bad. Not Usually end, they're right. talking about like a nine track album or something like that. And you're like, you know, you get like could, have been, could it have been the first song on side two of the tape? Hey. It's possible. Not bad. Phil. It's possible. But you know, it is I'm sure Tom's right that it's based around what they think the singles are, because sure. I can tell you that the singles Mama said knock you out, although aged the best right and had the best success overall was like the third single the first single they released was the first track boom and system then yeah, i think around the way girl that song sucks that's something that song does suck that I reminds agree. me of um that, that, i find that shocking 
What was that band? <laughs> Positive K. I got a man. But I feel like they were also like always talking about hooked up car systems as like their thing. And she's like, so it's very of an era, which is like, I've got really big speakers in my car. Woo! That makes me cool. It's like that no women enjoy being all the in that girlies car. want me because of my bass and my subwoofers. I really find that surprising that that was released as that was the first single. That yeah. song really sucks. Released That's before the bad. album was released. Yeah. Totally skippable. Well, I will say the part of it. And I, you know, a lot of albums were made this way, and I've continued to be made this way, which is that I think Mama Said Knock You Out was also one of the last songs recorded, mm-hmm. meaning I think they kind of got to the end of the recording session and, and said, um, I don't hear a single to reference the late great Tom Petty again, or, I, or we need more singles or something, right? And yeah. I think, think oh, then they, yeah, then they put Mama Said Knock You Out together. Another thing I noticed, maybe this is common, I'll ask our resident hip hop historian Tom for his advice. But there's a lot of internal references to the other songs on the record. Like he he repeats the booming system line. He does it a whole yeah, bunch of times yep. where he interweavingly it, it feels like a subliminal trick to try to get us to like like it more. Hey, people are talking about this song. I would say that that is not that circular thing. <laughs> It's not uncommon. You hear the it's prior like, song? It loved yeah. but I just anyway. You're basically talking. You know, he was he was ahead of the game because he had the whole echo chamber thing down. <laughs> it's just like you know, you get consolidated media voices. You get their echo chamber. No, that <laughs> it is not uncommon that there is like self-referential stuff in albums. But I would say that he does it more ham-handedly than is when you're like dealing with somebody who's actually like a very good lyricist that tends to be a little bit more subtle of a callback and he just will straight up just like repeat the lines yo go back the to the second cadence. song yeah, exactly. <laughs> what <laughs> like i said in verse three line two <laughs> okay Bruce. So, sorry the, let's, let's, let's let's get into the song so the first song i want to yeah. talk about is probably the second biggest single off the record uh, after the title track called Around the Way Girl. My take on this is that it's it's one of the better songs. Like Tom said, it kind of, I think, dictated where LL Cool J went with his career from here on. He seems comfortable in this zone. It's a good example in my mind of he pairs a, a pretty memorable kind of a crate diving sample with a pretty good hook. And it occurs to me on this album, or it occurred to me while I was listening to this album and researching it, that, that that's really the combination of things you need. Because I noticed some of the songs have good beats or good samples on them and terrible lyrics and terrible hooks you know you need you need both things to make it work it, yeah like just general song formats right kind of regardless of the uh of the genre a hook a chorus something that brings you back it's, it's why you like a song right it's why you like music it works right that chorus so i i think around the way girl to to your point yes that's it has yeah. that really tasty chord pattern that little high-pitched singing thing and that that represents the chorus i feel like there are other songs uh, probably most of the other songs in the album don't have kind of a hook that you come back to that that brings you back in that you like it's just I, like I, oh it's I another verse it. yeah i think you just nailed it this is this is i think the best track on the album the chords are great it has a great bass line the bass line does a cool transition between the chorus that that high pitch thing is actually a great reference. Now, listening to this record, I wondered like, where does that come from? Because it's like pitched up, it's like chipmunked, yeah, you know, but not so much that it feels like stupid. It feels like you're using technology to create something else, mm-hmm. right? It also is a great opening line, right? Which I think is cool. Yeah, I, I think this is the best track on the record, probably by a decent margin. 
I will say that I, in listening to this song, it sounded to me like this was two separate songs mashed together. <laughs> I did not see the connection between the verse and the hook. And like, I feel like that hook <laughs> could have been like, you could have put a million different verses and thrown that hook on the end of it. And it still kind of would have worked. And even like the production of the verse versus the production of the hook, it sounded like they wrote the hook. And then he was like, cool, I will throw a verse in there. And he just like wrote a verse and they're just like, great, we're just going to copy and paste this hook on top of the end of that verse. Yeah, the verse had this droning I would just call it a noise, right? It's just this kind of like hum that starts to get a little grating. And when it gets to the point where it's annoying, that's when the, the you know, the chorus comes back in. So I get you there, Tom, where it just feels there's no companionship the, between the chorus and the verse. To the, to the hook or anything it's like just, that. Like, yeah, yeah it's just yeah. bam, change, bam, change, bam. <laughs> this record, this record, and this isn't uh, necessarily a Mama Said Knock You Out thing. This is more of an early 90s, late 80s hip hop thing. Uh, I remember I read this book called You Are Not a Gadget by Jaron Lanyard. And something he talks about in the book is that like all music after about 1990 is retro of something else. And he goes on to say that hip hop is sort of like the last. And, and the way he tries to, the example he gives is uh, go pick like a Joy Division song and any modern uh, dance music and like have somebody close their eyes and play both of them for them and say, what year did those songs come out? Right. And they won't be able to tell you. Right. right. But he, he kind of said that hip hop is the last real art form because it uses the sort of tension created by the repetition of the same song as like part of the collage. Right. And I think that's really true. Like in this era, right. You're talking about like high pitch dronings. We're talking about sort of like pitch bending a sample. You can tell it's not human. And that's what it adds to like the mood. I sort of get that from this whole era of, of hip hop. I think it's like a strong example of that idea, whether you agree with it or not. I would point out Phil. Joy Division has two songs on the list of a thousand and one albums that you should hear before you die. Uh, two of uh, two albums on that list. So, okay. Yeah. All right. I already disagree, but uh, so we should. Say- <laughs> with me or Joy Division? Joy, with Joy, with Joy Division. It is um, a great name, though. Fantastic name. Great cannot, name. Cannot argue with that. But they did. They stole that from like a. That's some. That's a Nazi thing. I think. Yeah, it was the women who would fuck the soldiers. They were called the Joy Division. I, that's why I think it's kind of oh, like it's kind of like a metal name. Right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah. heavy. I do think there's some cool that you know, just going sample diving on this record made for some fun listening for my Spotify queue. Like trying to figure out because these are mostly songs I did not know. The song sampled in "Around the Way Girl" is called "Mary Jane Girls All Night Long," and yet yeah, is pitched up a little bit. But I I, I agree that like. Hearing a sample like this from an old record at a time when Wait, presumably... Hold on for one second. You're telling me that the hook of Around the Way Girl is just a sample of... No, no, I'm not n- not okay. the hook. Sorry, not the hook. Female the sugar, Okay, yeah, okay. Sugar, yeah. In fact, let's let's play a little bit of the clip right now so we all know what we're talking about. Brown sugar with the candy yams, honey coated complexion. Using cabinet, let's see it for the girls. She's from around the way. Okay, 
okay. So that was around the way girl, the the sample, not the hook, not the the around the way girl hook, to the best of my knowledge, was recorded by LL Cool J in the studio. I couldn't it's be, not him singing, though. Right? Not him singing, but I'm saying it was made for this record, as far as I know. Yeah. But I, I could be wrong. It's hard to tell. It's hard to pick apart these sample collages, as I think we all know. But based on my research, I'm just saying that finding out where these little other sample lines came from, the, the pitched up, slightly chipmunk mm-hmm. female vocal there is from a song called Mary Jane Girls All Night Long, which, of course, I had never heard, right? This ended up being LL Cool J's first top 10 hit. So he had commercial success before, but this is what really kind of started to break him in to the mainstream it was released before mama said knock you out which obviously took him a bit higher and i it's not my pick for the best song in the album personally but it is one of the better songs and i do see that ll could kind of see the path here yeah it's a direct line to backseat of my jeep which was like oh uh, yeah that's in my notes direct line to that (laughs) yeah cool Let's move. It's going to go downhill from here mostly. So let's, let's go on to, uh, I believe, just Tom, like the album, we should front stack, right? You stack all the good. Anyway, I believe Tom wanted to talk about Eat 'em Up L. Chill. Eat 'em Up L. It's okay. Listen, we don't have to get too far into this, but like the fact that this song is like pitched as his opportunity to like drop some bars and like show his lyrical style. If this is the best that he's bringing to the table for like a lyrical style in terms of lyrical complexity, it is a piss poor performance. Again, I keep, I keep hearkening back to that Eric B and Rakim album. It is just, it's just night and day. Like if you were to put like, let the rhythm hit him on and then play a verse of that versus a verse of LL Cool J being like, check out my lyrical styles. It is like you're doing the the simplistic, like it's still that kind of playground style rapping of like A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D rhyme style. And like there's no there's no depth to it. Also, the name of the song, Eat 'em Up L Chill. It's a it's a stupid name. You need at least a parenthetical on that chill or something. And <laughs> that like that's the hook is Eat 'em Up L Chill. Yeah. Eat 'em Up L Chill. I it's it's a bad song. And I I mean to bad our song. earlier point, like I think it's it's one of those things where there's just the beat alone. I could see how you listen to it when like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I'm I could almost see but it's so it's still very sparse, right? They didn't do enough sound collaging here, and they thought that LL's flow could cover the rest and not have to have a hook and any of this, or, or that that was a hook. And yeah, it just doesn't work, and that happens a bunch of times on the record. Rob, the beat, and uh, I, I would say that I, I have like a, something in my note about this. This song is terrible, by the way. One thing I did think that was, was quite interesting, though, is there was something about this that, I, like, I could hear the connection between like this and Modesky Martin and Wood, who like mm. would have been in New York City and around the same time, early '90s. I even like even like a band like Soul Live 
right? Like, I, I, not so much on this, on the later song, Power of God, who were also like a New York City band, like guys who grew up outside of New York and then moved to New York in there, you know, for college, essentially. Like, I did, there, there was something about this tune and, and Power of God that I felt like, oh, I hear New York in this, yeah. right? Like, I hear New York. And I thought that was interesting, but... No, it's, yeah. I agree. It's, it's funky and it's got a little bit of jazz in it. And I, I think what you're hearing is those jazz bands... I'm more hearing, or I kept thinking of Tribe as being that kind of line that Tom talked about of sort of jazz inflected hip hop that came next, you know, on into diggable planets and a bunch of other stuff. Right. But yeah, I definitely think there's some funkiness. For sure. But I think like where I would separate like Tribe Called Quest or like diggable planets is I feel like that's where, you know, and I'm not like a deep hip hop library. I think of those guys as more like sampling legit classic jazz right whereas this on on some of these tracks i felt maybe like i heard maybe the sounds of things that were maybe actually slightly more contemporary to the record like let me see when that first mmw record came out you, you guys can move on uh, yeah I, I i definitely hear what you're saying and one of the other things i think you can hear the molly mall production style on is listen i have very i'm also not a uh, hip-hop library but what I realized is that I have some sort of some records in my sphere that anchor me to different points in the hip hop mm-hmm. universe, let's say. And certainly one of them is that first tribe record. One of them is like Paul's Boutique. And that was another there's another track later on the record that, that made me think a little bit of that Paul's Boutique true sound collage. Sure. Like sure. that feels like true creativity with samples to like throw a bunch of things mm-hmm. in. This idea where you just rip a little piece of a bass line and repeat it. You know, it kind of works, but you need a lot more, I think, to create a song. And that's the problem with Eat em Up now. Eat em Up El Chill. <laughs> okay. Correct, they might think you're talking about another song, Eat em Up right. El. The, the line I pulled out from him uh, on Eat em Up El Chill was, Rhyme Sayer, I'm here to lay a load. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was funny. Again, he's, <laughs> he's getting the, the inkling of the sexual is the way I need to go. That's how right. I'm going to get him. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's let's move on to Mr. Goodbar. He all he oh, references sexual this, tune. <laughs> yeah, he references this several times later on the record. Uh, again, I would say it's an example of a, a pretty decent beat, but just terrible lyrics. I uh, maybe maybe the wor- I have a I have a lyric here that I think might be the worst lyric on the album. It's if the Mona Lisa's name was Teresa, I'd get a pizza the Mona Lisa. Yeah, that is the worst line on the album. I had that highlighted as well as like I, I might have to challenge you on that one. Oh, okay, with, with okay. The line, oh, please. That I think. Well, so so there's there's different versions of bad lines. One is just cringeworthy, and yours is just poorly written that doesn't make any sense. So I I, I think mine, the one that I wrote down, are the cards on the table and the deal is dealt. I'm in the mood for a tuna melt, and I can't make you. I sure wouldn't rape you. <laughs> so that. Gets a little awkward pretty quick. Oh, by the way, like those lines are written. like four lines apart. Like right. that's the same verse. They occur yeah. in the same verse. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're coalescing. This is the worst written song on the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, and there the, are some other bad lines that I that I highlighted. I, I think I have some positive notes on this song. Let me see what my positive notes were. Uh, I would be shocked. Uh, no, actually, like- one of actually one of my notes is actually that this all this song also talks about having sex in a car, which is <laughs> that's actually my note. I think that the one thing that we can take away from this is that LL 
went to clubs and then fucked women in his car outside of clubs <laughs> with kind of disturbing frequency. I wouldn't say that's probably a pattern. Okay. All right. All right. Moving on. We don't need to listen to that terrible song. Let's go on to right. Murder Graham. Murder Graham. It's, yes. This is a great example of a title that really, he's, he's really reaching for, to sound like he is a gangster when he's clearly not. I've yeah, heard that, of the telegram, was, so what if it was a murder gram? Really? That's my whole beef with this song. It's so fucking inauthentically, like, I am so fucking hard. I am I mean, sending you a murder gram. But, like, <laughs> honestly, like... <laughs> That would be a really nice. I want to be to bring on the rookies. I got more than just Cool J cookies. Come on, like that's in, that's in a song called Murder Grave. He's talking about Cool J cookies. If you have to murder someone, if they get a little song and dance, like a guy with a tuxedo and flowers shows up at their door, <laughs> that's you know. Yeah, like if you were to pull up any lyric from like any song on the Chronic, where Dre is just telling you what he's gonna do to you, it's. <laughs> going to involve a gun and, a, and him telling a story about another time he did this and how no it turned cookies. out for that guy. And it's going to be very believable. <laughs> By but, the way, I would just like to throw, we talk about self-referential stuff. One of the lines in there is like, and I bruised the party like jumper cables. So plug me in and put me on. I'm serial hard so I can battle them more. From coast to coast, fly, cripple, and crazy. I think he's I, serial. I don't think it's spelled S E R I A L. I think it's spelled C E R E A L. I think about like I'm hard like cereal. Inception. To yet another song that's on there. Inception. <laughs> Go listen. Well, no. It, so amidst Murdergram, the uh, the one I the line I pulled out amidst the song called Murdergram, he goes on a whole food kick. Like that's hot. Like that's a gangster thing to talk about. <laughs> Mr. Morris has entered the buffet. Some of y'all sitting in rows. That's that's not even a line. Plates of hot butter rolls. Beat you with bologna. Slap you with salami. Because when I get hot, I get hot like pastrami. That's totally. Yo, girl, what do you know about marjoram? (laughs) What? In the booth, hungry as hell in here. Yo, on the other, on the other, on the other side of things, maybe LL should be taking these women out to dinner because I mean, like, a strong sandwich sounds all too, right. Exactly, he's too nice. He's yeah. too nice. Okay, I don't. I, we don't. I don't want anyone to listen to that one either. This let's move on. I think we're having. Let's move on to the to the title track. Mama said, "Knock you out." So, based off of a, a Sly in the Family Stone sample the song's called trip to your heart it also uses the classic funky drummer james brown drum break and there was one other sample i found in there that i, I do want you guys to listen to when you get a chance called gangster's boogie which is, it sounds like uh really coked out porno music it's pretty great nice but anyway i, I think this is a good example and, and the backstory to this is that ll used to work with these these guys that called the la posse and they basically left him on the third record because they tried to demand more money and the record company said, like, fuck off, right? So for this fourth record, when he's trying to come back from his naysayers on the third album, he calls up this dude, um, his friend in L.A., this guy Bobcat, and this dude comes in to help produce. And basically the, the story is that he had been shopping around this Sly and the Family Stone beat for, like, years. I think he had tried recording a few different songs with it and it was kind of like known to be the hot thing and like ll sort of demands it from him i assume paid him paid him uh, handsomely for it and yeah this is what inspired the song right i will say i like this song not lyrically complex again but the opening line 
is iconic. And I think that that is what drives so much of the, not only the success of it, like as a single, but like as entering the public consciousness, the whole don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. It's a great line. It's a, that is undeniably a really good line. So much so that I doubt that LL wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, his mother or grandmother did, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. She instructed him to violence. uh, (laughs) Let's, let's take a quick moment. Let's listen to the the opening of mama said, not you. Come back. I agree, Tom, that the, the opening of these songs is, is so key. And in this case, it really hit the mark. It, one of the fun anecdotes I found about this song is that he, he later won a Grammy for it. Thus, he played the Grammys with a band. But the problem was that right before the Grammy ceremony, when he was supposed to perform live, his band demanded more money. And he was like, no. So his, really? his father manager fired them. And then basically, if you go watch the YouTube performance of the band, like they barely know the song. He's like, they literally were just winging it <laughs> live on the Grammy. Yes. For like, you that. know, I'm going to guess like somewhere in the neighborhood of five hundred to a thousand dollars. difference. Pro- yeah, probably. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two and a half minute gig. Yeah. This, yeah. This on song, the Grammys. In addition to like cool production, it has really hip drops. You know, like when it yeah. cuts out and sort of the pockets created. I think it's a really hit. It's just really hit. They call those break beats, Phil. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a great, again, it, it pairs a really memorable sample. Like what I'm compelled by when I was listening to this record is this is an era where you could literally just pull a record out of the crate, any record, any time, seemingly with no no need to worry about copyright or anything like that. And just and run with sample it. Sample <laughs> anything in the known universe. <laughs> And yet, you know, which works to great effect on songs like this and even on Around the Way Girl, it helps. On the other songs, I'm like, why didn't you just go look for a sample from a better song? <laughs> <laughs> like, how hard is it? This well, this song has something that reminded me of Jump Around. It actually happens a couple times on this record. There's this, like, real high-pitched squeal. Uh-huh. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this song has, it's almost like a cat sound in the chorus mm-hmm. it's like oh yep. i'm gonna knock you yeah that come from whose idea was that <laughs> i don't know whose idea it was but like you point this out as like uh as that that's like a jump around thing i always that is cypress hill to me like yeah. go listen to any cypress hill album and like every single song has a weird out of pitched horn in the background screen <laughs> and it's, it's the entire song and it's like it's the kind of thing where like you hear it you're like that's cool and then like a minute and a half in you're like are you still fucking doing that sound it sounds so annoying and by the end of the song you're like no i've come back to it it actually sounds cool again <laughs> they found that perfect you know time amount of time to yeah. bring it back yeah okay let's let's keep moving this along we have what i think might be the worst song on the record coming up next which is milky cereal oof Basically, the song idea here was to shove as many breakfast cereal names into the lyrics as possible (laughs) and then write a horrendous, unmemorable cereal based hook. Like this, Uh, he name checks 12 cereal brands in this song, by the way. 12 (laughs) cereal brands. 
the, the hook, I use the term very loosely. The hook is, you know, one note, monotone, like not, it's, it's terrible from conception to execution. No, and they have, all right. So this is one of the things that stuck out to me on this song, like very starkly, because he's like milky cereal baby and like there's a woman who says baby in the background but they clipped the sample like incorrectly and so you don't get like a natural in like step in and you don't get a natural decay on the sample so it's yeah, like sure. it's really oddly clipped where it's kind of like baby and like it doesn't complete its like cadence and it's doesn't like flow. i listen to it and it's like that's just such an obvious problem you, Did you just toss a little reverb on that or something yeah. <laughs> so anything something <laughs> the the line i pulled out that really represents it just to me it, it covers how bad it is when we began her hairstyle was neat but when i left the next morning it looked like shredded wheat <laughs> <laughs> no uh listen i so, hold on hold on it continues uh, talked uh, about yeah. marriage i said that's risky besides it's such a waste of rice krispies <laughs> <laughs> listen <laughs> i'm not going to debate that that is nonsensical in any way shape or form my the thing that stuck out to me the most was not the terrible lyrics because they are terrible, but it is the delivery of the, th- it's the third verse where he's like, um, then there was pebbles. Times was rough. She was turning tricks to get her cuckoo puffs. He oh, literally does like the cuckoo puffs in a voice. Yeah. It sounds so it's, odd. And like, I don't understand how anybody could be sitting in the booth and be like, yeah, no, that's the one. Yeah. Keep killing it. LL. <laughs> you have to wonder. Randy just recorded murder gram. Why don't you go ahead and do your rice crispy voice or your fruit loop yeah. voice a little higher. Perfect. So, on the fruit loop stuff. There's also, which I found to be interesting. He's like, uh, he talks about like he's going to a club and he's got an earring and he's like, and some guy comes up and says, your earring looks nice. And he's like, uh, I, I got an earring, but it's not a fruit loop. It's like the gay panic of like, no, I have an earring, but I'm not gay. Don't fucking talk to me about this shit. I fuck women. I'll in do my it right car. now. Watch. In my car. <laughs> in my car. <laughs> Want to go to my car right now? <laughs> I, I like, I think in all likelihood, he did have self-doubt while recording this, and then he fought through it. <laughs> like, no, no, this is going to work. LL, sense. you've got 13 out of 14 songs about banging women. You can't. <laughs> all right, all right, so, I got it. But this one's weird, because there's, like, there is a sort of, like, Norwegian wood thread through it, where, like, there's this... <laughs> Sort of like a female character. <laughs> She's like so you three different quite, female, three right. different female characters. Yeah, right. You can't quite make out what he's talking about. You get the sense so, of it. You know? I like by like we should play the third verse of this song right now because there are two deliveries in there that I just think are both very odd choices and I, I think need to be called out. Okay, let's take a moment to play the third verse of Milky Cereal. Milky. Cereal, baby, milky, cereal, yeah, check milky. this out here, cereal, then there was pebbles, times was rough, she was turning tricks to get a cuckoo puff, her mind was gone, but she turned me on, in fact, she was wearing an Applejack hat, with a full length fox and some pink bobby socks, her father had a greedy disease, fried chicken pox, we called him Hungry Jack, he talked like Python and he dressed like a Mac, he invited me out to lunch with an old army buddy at his Captain Crunch. The waiter said, Jack, what would you like today? He said, I don't know, this make a special, okay? He said, cool. All right, so let's get beyond the fact that he 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 gets in pebbles, really tries to shoehorn in another cereal reference where he said, 
her mind was gone, but she turned me on. In fact, she was wearing an Applejack hat. That's not a thing. You don't get to say that. Right? <laughs> that's, that's not a. <laughs> But then he goes to uh, like he talks about like uh, he talked like pops and then dressed like the Mac invited me out to lunch with an old army buddy of his Captain Crunch. Of course, the waiter said, Jack, what would you like today? He said, um, I don't know. Just make it special. OK, <laughs> who again? That's right. It's he like does the, the voice a couple of times the with voice. the lisp. Oh, so weird. It's so like, not like murder gram. Kind of <laughs> mentally challenged. I don't right. understand it. It's definitely not murder grab. No. <laughs> yeah, and then you're telling me that your nine is easy to load on another song. I'm like, yeah, buddy, you don't <laughs> yeah, know what sure the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> this one definitely has strong Will Smith vibes as well. In the humorous, it's the delivery. Style. You're right. Yeah, if this yeah. was if this was done by Will Smith, I bet it would have been funny and fun. <laughs> and it just, as Tom pointed out, I mean, there's just a bunch of things that make no sense. Like they don't. You're just really shoehorning this stuff. What is? Why is talking about marriage a waste of Rice Krispies? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. An Applejack hat is not a thing. Applejack hat is not a thing. Oh yeah, and uh, yes. With an army buddy of his, Captain Crunch. Like I'm sure when he wrote that line, he's like, oh, yeah, Captain Crunch. <laughs> Nailed it. Or yeah, seriously. EPMD Again, is going to be so proud of me. This is where a guy who's already had success and is, like, no longer, like, hungry for that shit. Like, if you were a dude on a stoop trying to be like, yo, I got this fucking song. It's dope. It's called Milky Cereal. And you started, like, saying this to your friends, you're like, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, come on, man. Like, go back and work harder. Yeah. Work harder. And this is your hook is milky cereal. You can milky do better, cereal. LL. Baby. Yeah, exactly. Stick with the setup. Hey, guys, it, it's, uh, it's come to my attention that an Applejack hat is a thing. Really? Oh. I'm sending them to you on. I found them on Etsy. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, but on. were they a thing in 1990? Exactly. That's the I, question. I, I think they were a thing before 1990. They're not what you're going to think they are. If you oh, check. it's like the Peaky Blinders shit. Or, yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know what, still, LL? Still, still terrible. Later. I apologize. Right. Your song is still terrible, yes. But uh, I apologize. I guess an Applejack hat is a thing. Wait, and, I just figured uh, out what sucks. I figured out what he might mean by a waste of Rice Krispies, like throwing the rice after the wedding. <gasps> wow so is this okay. really the deepest album and we're just no, so no it's really not no it's still terrible it's still terrible okay on to the, the last song i think we're gonna specifically talk about here and what i actually think of as the most replayable song on the album which is really not saying a lot but i do kind of like this song jingling baby remix still jingling okay so you guys are aware that this album, that this was on his album before this, right? Yes. yes. Jingle Baby was on Walking Wait, with I'm, the Panther. I'm, I'm sorry. The same song was on the, the prior. Same song. Well, it's a remix. Here's, well, here's the thing. He re-recorded the lyrics because they're a little different. But they're like 99% the same, but they're like a little different. You, he basically just references the fact that it's a remix a couple of times. But this, so this is how he hooked up with Molly Mall because he was getting shit for the third album, include, which included this single. And then this, and Molly Mall like approached him or they met or something. And he was like, hey, I could fix that. I could remix that song for you and make it better. And he did make it better. It's pretty close. But I mean, he made it a little better. 
I'm sorry. The thing that really did it for me was just the re-recorded lyrics. Like, I, it, <laughs> like, it, rewrite the lyrics if you're gonna rewrite the lyrics, but don't just like throw in two or three lines about how like this is a different version of the song, but it's the same fucking version of the song. And also, by the way, the hubris of a 22 year old constantly referring to himself as Uncle L. Like, you're 22 years old, man. Like, <laughs> whose uncle are you? Maybe you are a legitimately an uncle, but like. Uncle is commonly known as like an old man thing. And uh, if you're trying to put yourself out there, it's just like storied father of hip hop or something like that. You've been in the game a long time. Yeah. He's also been able to go to bars legally for like 18 months at this point. So I can't buy, I can't buy uncle L the wise wisdom of the sage individual. Or I, I thought this production aged the best. It might just be because I'm anchored as we were talking about earlier, by things like Paul's Boutique, it had a little more of that sample collage element to it that I thought aged better than a lot of the other sort of backing tracks. I also thought that the, so the, the main sample here is from a band called Central Lines, song Walking Into Sunshine, which I found to be probably the most listenable of the sample songs I went and dug out. To me, it works. I think it's more playable, replayable than Mama Said Knock You Out or Around the Way Girl. That's just my opinion. You want to give a little listen to uh, some of Jingling Baby remix? Let's do it. That was Jingling Baby remix in parentheses, still jingling. Rob, I can see, I guess you were coming from the production value side. I think that there was a definite step up in production from the Jingling Baby on Walking with a Panther to the Jingling Baby on Mama Said Knock You Out. Same I just song, like just did a different mix. Is it having not heard the original version? What, what, what's the differences that you guys? They throw more samples in there. It's more funky because of those. So a lot of more of those samples, like Tom okay. said, he re-recorded the lyrics, added a couple lines, which isn't much. It's basically it is basically the same song, though. Well, the thing yeah. is that like the hook of that song doesn't carry the song absent good production, and so they did better production, and so the hook is more forgivable with better production. I still don't think it's a very strong hook, but I would agree that like the, there's a significant step up in production from the previous version of it. Well, those are all the songs. I think, I think we ran through and I've talked about this album quite enough. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one more piece of trivia from a, from a song we didn't talk about cheesy rat blues, which is that run the jewels took their name from this by the road. They took their name from that. Yes, he has a line in there. That's according to Run the a Run the Jewels interview I read. Oh, okay, okay. Because yeah. I know Run the Jewels is like uh, you know, I mean Wu Tang says Run the Jewels in a couple of songs. That's like a that's a thing that apparently they would say to people when they would rob you in New York is like fucking Run the Jewels, give me all of your your gold or I will shoot you. Maybe LL is like Shakespeare and he was just the first person to put it to tape and get it into Killer Mike's ears. I'm not sure, but that's what I heard. Mm. Nah, fair enough. Listen, if that came from LP and Killer Mike in an interview, who am I to say that they're wrong? But there are a lot of cooler songs that you could say run the jewels. Well, that's uh, why like, I was, you know, I was surprised. Yeah, it's a, it's a lame song. Okay, so now it's time for our, our, our last of the podcast roundup. Does this album, Mama Said Knock You Out, belong 
on the list of 1001 albums you have to hear before you die. Do you have to hear this album before you die? And I go to Tom first. My answer is no. I think it's a fun album, and I think it's an album that points to some of the directions that hip-hop was going in, but like the specific vein of hip-hop that this probably spawned, which was the sexy hip-hop, I don't like. And all of the other types of like the gangster rap, the conscious hip hop, the sort of message driven hip hop, those kind of fun jazz lo-fi sample hip hop. I like all of the other examples that we talked about more that came out in this exact same year. I don't think this belongs on a, a thousand and one albums I need to hear before I die. If I never heard this, I would die complete. Great. Adam. Tom did a much more thorough investigation of that, but from, from my non-schooled hip hop brain, it was fun. It didn't change my life. You know, two or three solid tunes on there that I enjoyed. I, I'll probably re-listen to, and I'm actually happy that if I ever hear them again, I'll be able to say, hey, I actually know that. That's from that LL album. Uh, but no, it does not deserve to be in the top 1,001. Phil? Nah, I got hard no. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I'm really being honest, like I, I had trouble not skipping most of the songs by the end of the song. Uh, so yeah, no, I don't, I don't need to listen to this one again. And I don't think you need to either. Yeah, it's, it's a no for me as well. Uh, LL's having some kind of identity crisis here. He doesn't, he's too scattered in his approach. And yeah, we listed off a, a bunch of better records that do, that take either little pieces of this or are related to little techniques that are being on display here. And, and they just do them a lot better. And I think that's, that's really ultimately LL Cool J's problem is he hasn't picked a lane. He's a piece of musical equipment that does a lot, but doesn't do anything particularly well at this point. So no. Sorry, LL. That's a down vote from all of us. You're <laughs> off the list. I'm sure you're going to take it hard. Do a couple more sit-ups. Past it. He might write, nope. he might a, he might write a, uh, a Murdergram remix just for us. So watch yeah. it. We might, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, that would that be would pretty be badass. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I would put that least, on my fucking resume for me. The least around. intimidating <laughs> song of all time. Yeah, sure. He'll get Jimmy Page to uh, do the solo. <laughs> and offer us some cookies. So that would be great. So here we wrap up another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. Uh, all that's left to do is to decide on what album is coming up next. Are you guys excited to see what comes up next? Super. Tom, Listen, I you got have, your, yeah. I got the Albatron 5000 all warmed up. I've, uh, you know, I've been working the crank all day to build up the momentum so that when I let that bad boy loose, it's just going to spin that wheel with ferocity. And drum roll, please. Coming up. For next week, we have Eric Clapton's 461 Ocean Boulevard. Okay. Should be wow. very interesting. Not interesting. familiar with the album. I am not at all familiar with the album. So this is, uh, like I said, man, this whole this whole thing is great for me because it's a whole lot of albums I've never listened to. So I think Eric Clapton is a renowned accordion player. I've heard of him in sure. lots of, yes, lots of his, Polish circles around uh, his hand. Music. His hand goes quite uh, quickly through the motion <laughs> uh, yes. no absolutely and he is also staunchly against cocaine very much an <laughs> anti-cocaine guy yes that's, that's that's probably what he's most well known for actually yeah. he's just like listen i i drink coffee and that's about as much of a buzz as i need not <laughs> after 2 30 <laughs> well i look forward to us discussing eric clapton's album next week and shitting all over that until then <laughs> We are signing off on 1001 Album Complaints. Thank you for joining us. I've been Rob. I am Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Phil. 
and we will see you next week.